Well, do you guys ever get sucked into those worst criminals ever shows? We do at our house. We get the chuckles out of them. Like the guy who uh, called the place he was going to rob to ask them how much money was in the cash register before he came. And of course, that meant his phone number was now in their possession, right? Or the criminal who uh, set off the alarm while he was robbing a place only to have the phone ring and it was the alarm company. And the man picked it up and gave the dispatcher his full name. Or how about the car thief who showed up at the courthouse for his court date driving another stolen vehicle? Or the guy who fell asleep on the job just decided while he was robbing the place to take a little nap only to sleep a little too long and have the homeowner come home and discover him there. But I really like the guy who just had to check his social media while he was burglarizing someone, and so he used their Wi-Fi to sign on. <laughs> Talk about leaving a bread trail, right? But the one that really got me chuckling was a guy in South Carolina. He decided to rob a convenience store, and he smashed open the front doors, and then he stole $160 worth of beer, cigarettes, energy drinks, and snack foods. But he inadvertently busted open a couple bags of Cheetos that he was carrying with him on his way out. So all of a sudden, as he's leaving the store, there's a little pile of orange Cheetos following him all the way to his getaway vehicle, which the surveillance camera, by the way, picked him up driving out in. The trail goes to his car, he jumps in, he peels out. Pretty soon, the police are on his driveway. They, drop, they walk up to the car to investigate, and what do they see? A little trail of orange Cheetos going from the car all the way across the lawn, up the front porch, and into the front yard. He left a literal path of evidence in his wake. But it got me to thinking, what evidence are you and I leaving as we live in this life? As we traverse the earth, what kind of evidence are we leaving in our wake? Or as the old time preachers used to ask, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be any evidence to convict you? If you were arrested for being a Christian, actually, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's what John is going to be having us think about tonight, because in his book, he gives us three tests. Three tests, the first one we saw last week, they're tests about whether or not you're a Christian. The first test is, the truth that you believe. The second test is the life that you lead, and that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. And the third test John gives is the love that you show, which is where we're going next time and for a while. But tonight's test is going to hit us right between the eyes because tonight's test basically is gonna be, can you tell you're a Christian just by looking? If someone was to send an investigator out to your life, would they see clear and convincing proof of your faith in your daily schedule? I mean, do you, do you come to church every weekend? Do you go to your HFG or your small group? Do you read and study your Bible every day? Do you serve in a ministry post? Do you give financially to the Lord? What about your free time? If I was a fly on the wall in your life, would I be able to tell that you are a Christian? What about if I had eyewitness testimony? We brought in the prosecuting attorney brought in your coworkers, your neighbors, 
your extended family, your children, your spouse, and they were testifying against you? Would the things that you do hold up your claim of Christ? Would they say that your work ethic, your life choices, your recreational activities, your integrity backs up your claim of being a Christian? Do you talk like a Christian? Do you drive like a Christian? Do you spend like a Christian? Do you watch TV like a Christian? And do you ever try to get other people on board to follow after the one that you say, your Lord and Savior that you love so much? Do you ever try to get other people on board with you? Would people say that you're leading them closer to Christ or farther away? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because the birthmark of a Christian is that they follow Christ. Followers of Christ follow Christ. Or would it be the case that after all the evidence has been presented and all the witness testimony has been gathered, that like one preacher said, the judge would bang his gavel down on the desk and say, case dismissed for lack of evidence. I sure hope not. And John hopes not too, which is why he's going to give us some very critical information and motivation to live right and to get convicted of your Christianity so that your case will never be thrown out for lack of evidence. We're gonna study a very large and powerful text of scripture because we're going from 28, 228 to 310. Um, But the thesis statement is found in verse 29, which says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him or the way a person lives proves their standing before God. And every single chunk we study is going to try to make sure that your birthmark, the proof of your salvation, that you live right, is right there up front and center for everybody to see in your life. Because God's kids follow him. Not to be made right with him, but because they are right with him. So I'm not gonna apologize that the application is exactly the same for all five points. You can see them there. Do you see the application? Live right, live right, live right, live right, live right. And just so you know, Pastor Mike did three sermons on these 12 verses. Not sure how I got so fortunate to have 12 verses, but he did three separate sermons. That's nine points. Hey, I put it down to five, so, you know, we're gonna slam through these. But John is going to tell us to live right But what he's gonna do is he's going to give us five reasons that we should live right. Each one of these is another reason that he gives us to live right. The first is in chapter three, verse one. It's to see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The initial reason to live right and live up to your birthmark is because God loves you. That's point number one, live right because God loves you. Live right because God loves you. The Bible says that God loves you and me and every child that he's made his own. And that is truly amazing, truly amazing. It's why John is practically shouting at this this at us. He says, see or look here or don't you dare miss the kind of love that God has for us. Other translations say that he lavished it, he poured it down 
on us. It was an abundance of love that he gave us. And John is astonished at the kind of love that God has for us. That's why he says, see, see what kind of love. That word is the same word that was used of the disciples when they watched Jesus calm the seas. And when the waves and the winds stopped in an instant, the Bible says they marveled at him and thought, who is this guy? That's the same word, marveling. It, it reminds us we should marvel at the amazing love God has for us. John is also blown away by the extent of God's love. Listen to what he says. He says that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John is flabbergasted that God would make any of us. The Almighty God would make us his children. Um, Romans 5, 8 sums it up this way. God said, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We could do nothing to earn his love. We are not inherently lovable, and yet God loved us because he chose to love us. That's all there is to it. He initiated everything, from the humiliating life he led on earth to the excruciating death he died for us. He did it all because he loves us. God chose to place his favor on us, but we're not the first. He did it with the nation of Israel before us. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, a really great passage. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says this about Israel and God placing his love on them. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's been said many times on this stage, we did nothing um, to engender God's love. All we did was provide the sin that he was going to need to save us from. That's all we added to this equation. We should wonder a tiny bit more at the amazing gift of God's love. And we're not just kinda sorta his kids. He says we're really his kids. That's what it says right here. It's, we are 100% guaranteed to be a part of his family. God's love for us is unconditional, which means if you didn't do anything to get into it, you can do nothing to get out of it either. That means no thing, no person can get you out of being a part of God's family and experience his love. It means even you can't do something to bomb out of this and lose his love Nothing, nothing can strip this from you. And the security and the love that we experience, of course, should make us celebrate it, and it should make us worship him. Um, but it's not just supposed to make us sit here and feel good. In this passage, it's supposed to motivate us to live right and act like the children of God that we are. It's like the day you got married, okay? You got married because you love this person, and instantly everything changed. Your priorities changed, your schedule changed, your loyalty changed, your habits changed. I heard a pastor say recently, um, when you have a wife, you know it. <laughs> and guess what? When you have a husband, you know it too, right? I got another one for you. When you married Jesus, you also knew it. You didn't just go, oops, I'm married. No, you, you know it. You know that you married him. And just like serving other men, pleasing other men, being faithful to other men, when you're married to someone else is wrong, so too is 
you loving or serving something or someone more than Christ if you're his bride. It's fine for an unmarried woman to act unmarried. But when you get married, you have to begin to act habitually married from then on and demonstrate your habitual marriedness with everyone you meet. Okay, God loves us and we love him, but we can't just let those warm, fuzzy feelings lull us into a sense of complacency and we're just gonna chill out. Hmm. On the contrary, God wants his love to motivate us to live right. That's what this point is all about. And 1 John 2 and 3 is not the only place in scripture that teaches the concept of loving him and living for him together. Um, in Deuteronomy 7, the passage I just talked about that said God chose to love the Israelites just because he chose to love them, the verse right before it, verse 6, says this. It says, for you were a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples are on the face of the earth. God chose to love you, and God set you apart to be different and to act different. It's right there in that passage. He wants to prove we're his kids by us living right. Um, now, I said our application for every point is the same today, and it is. Live right, live right, live right, live right, live right. Okay, but I am going to give you one suggestion, one for every single one. If we're gonna have to remember that God loves us, the one suggestion I have for you is to make one Post-it note, okay? First John 3, 1. I mean, how could you have a better Post-it note than that? See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let's act like God loves us by living right. Just one suggestion to remember it. Well, that's the first reason to holy, be holy, because God loves us. Let's move on to the next. Verse two and three says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we're gonna grab verse 28 too. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The next reason we need to live right is point number two, because Christ is coming back. Live right because Christ is coming back. It says we're God's kids now. We just talked about that. But what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he comes back, it's going to be in an instant. First Corinthians 15 says we're going to be changed. This says we're going to be like him. First Corinthians 15 says we're gonna get those glorified bodies. We talked about it before. The bodies that are perfect, pretty, productive, and pure, right? That's what First Corinthians 15 tells us. Here it says we will see him and we will be like him. Philippians 3.21 puts it this way. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that he enables him even to subject all things to himself. And when Jesus comes back, he wants us to be ready. He wants us to be waiting. He wants us to be watching. And if you think of all the stories Jesus told in the New Testament, many of them had to do with this theme, that you would be ready when he shows up at the door. Now, one of those stories is in Luke 19, and it's that Minas story. 
the master goes away and he's gonna come back at some point, but while he's gone, he says, I'm giving you some money to take care of and I want you to invest it and I want you to make a return. It was mina in this story. Um, the people who invested it and made a return got the well done, good and faithful servant. When the master came back and he comes back unexpectedly, they get that reward. But the ones who didn't invest and get a return, they're called wicked and they're stripped of everything they had. Okay? We know that passages like 1 Corinthians 3, which we've studied before, says that our lives are going to evaluate it on that day. If we've done things that God values and that are important to him and even come from the book you have sitting in front of you, his word, that you will be rewarded. But if you do things that are not important to him and you waste the time that you have here, that you will be saved if you've trusted in Christ, but that you will suffer loss. And here, in this passage, it says you will be ashamed on that day if you haven't invested it in the right stuff. One writer likens living for that other day to being born in the royal family. Imagine it. Both William and Charles were born knowing that someday they'll be the king of England. It's not yet today, but someday they will be the king of England. And uh, it could potentially be far off, but they're acting like they're the king of England now. They're acting like the reality is already in their grasp. They're living out their legacy. They're living out their future, even though they haven't realized it yet. Every decision they make is for that future day. Will they be ready to be king? Um, and so the return of Christ, it's a cause for great celebration, of course, but it's also a cause for great sobriety in us because passages like 1 Peter 1.17 say to us, if we call on him as father who judges impartially according to each man's work, we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile here on earth. We wanna be able to run up and greet Jesus with a big smile on our face and a clear conscience on that amazing day, right? That's why 1 John 3.3, the passage, the chunk that we're in right now says, everyone who thus hopes in him. That's the hope of his return, the hope of him coming back. If you're hoping he's gonna come back, what does it say? It says, he purifies himself as he is pure. That means you live right today because you're sure that Jesus is coming back and someday he's gonna be at the door. So how can we always be ready? Well, first of all, we can't be out meandering in the mud in the backyard. Right? If you know he's coming, don't do that. Okay? Jan Kopic likes to put it like this. Just because you walk by the trash can doesn't mean you have to open the lid. <laughs> if you know Jan, that makes perfect sense, right? So we need to start patterns, good, solid patterns in your life um, that will keep you from picking up the lid, right? Good, solid patterns. That's what you want to have around your life. You want to say no to sin before it ever happens because you've set up these good, solid patterns. But let's be honest, we all know that it's gonna come a day when we blow it, right? If it hasn't already happened in the last three hours, we're going to blow it and we're going to sin. We're not always going to be pure as he is pure, as the passage says. So what do we do about that? Well, it would be a lie from hell 
for you to believe that if he walks in the door, he walks in the door and you have some unconfessed sin that for some reason you're gonna have to pay that yourself. You're not. Jesus paid it all, right? Paid in full. So you're not gonna burn it off in some way, but that still doesn't mean that I want him coming in when everything's not clean and orderly. I mean, don't, wouldn't you rather come in when everything is clean and orderly, orderly in your life and not be embarrassed when he walks in the door? Of course. Okay, so what are we gonna do? <laughs> well, we're gonna make it our aim to ha- set up these good patterns, but when we mess up, I'm gonna tell you to rinse your dishes. Just rinse your dishes. It's as simple as that. You've messed up, rinse your dishes. Stuff got dirty, clean it up. Clean it up now. And I don't mean clean it up like you've gotta go do some weird you know, bunch of tasks. I mean clean it up by going to God and confessing it, okay? So when you blow it, rinse your dishes. Clean it up now. Now, I wish I could say that I always did that. I always rinse my dishes. Um, Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes it comes back to bite me when I don't, like the time when um, a group of my friends planned a surprise birthday party for me at my house, and I left dishes all over the counter, and someone else had to do them for me. How embarrassing. I didn't rinse my dishes, right? But about a month ago, I had the opportunity of having a moment of victory because when my husband and my daughter and I had to rush across the country to a funeral, I had rinsed my dishes before I left. And my son and my daughter-in-law had to evacuate to our house during the fires, and I was like, phew, okay. It's all cleaned up, I've rinsed my dishes. I'm so happy that at this moment my house is clean, right? because I had that moment of being ready. Everything was ready. And I was not ashamed. When I wasn't there to rush around, I was not ashamed to have them walk in because I had rinsed my dishes. So when things get dirty, confess it and move on, okay? Try to live a sanctified life with good patterns, living up to the truth you already know and a pattern of holiness, but if not, Rinse your dishes and confess your sin because you do not want to be shrinking back when he comes. So we live right because Jesus is coming back. There's more. Verse four and five and then you have eight is the next one. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and that in him there is no sin. And then verse eight, the end says, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. From this text, we get the third reason to live right, and that is because Jesus wants to destroy sin. Because Jesus wants to destroy sin. Both five and eight clued us into this when it said he came in order to take away sin, in order to destroy the works of the devil. It's clear that Jesus' purpose when he came the first time was not to deal with the political unrest or oust the guy who was in charge or set up his kingdom here. No, he came the first time to deal with the sin issue, to take care of sin. And verse four, though, adds something different to this because it says everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, obviously, avoiding sin is the theme of this whole message tonight, right? But here it adds a different element to it because sin is not just the occasional mistake or the missing the mark here and there. Here it brings up the word 
practicing sin. This is now talking about habitual sin in someone's life. And in your study, you may have come across the fact that that word practice isn't even in the Greek. But the word sinning is in the tense that makes it a continual thought. Sinning continually and habitually. This isn't like, oops, I accidentally made a mistake. This is, I'm doing it all the time. It's habitual. I, I, I can't, I'm practicing it. It's, I'm dominated by sin. That's what we're talking about here. And that should never characterize a follower of Christ. That habitual, continual sin. John says everyone, and that means there is no exception. Everyone who practices sin or makes a pattern of sin will call their salvation into question. We're going to talk about it more in the next point, but for now, we just have to make the point that it's habitual sin we're talking about here. Not a oops. It's continual, okay? Then John adds the word lawlessness. And lawlessness is sin on steroids because lawlessness is full-blown rebellion against God and his standards. It's evil and wickedness. That's what that word lawlessness means. Again, not an oops, not an accident. This is a rebellion flat out against God. That can never be taken lightly in a so-called Christian. Okay, let's look at the thrust in verse five a little closer. It says, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. Jesus was the spotless lamb. He was the actual sacrifice that would bear the sins for his people, everyone you've done, past, present, and future, for all time. And he didn't get this wrath of God because of anything he had done. In fact, it clearly says, in him there is no sin, in this very verse. He was innocent, but he took the hit for us. If we had no other reason to avoid sin, that would be a good one. We should be motivated to avoid sin because look what it did to Christ. Look at the hit he took for us. Jesus didn't just come to take sin's punishment on the cross. He also came to minimize the impact of sin on our world, in our homes, in our churches. He wants to minimize it, even the ones we're actually still involved in right this second. It says he appeared to take them away. It means to carry it away, to remove it. A Christian should have a decisive break with sin in their life. Verse 8 makes it even more emphatic because it says the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy means to obliterate and put an end to it. You know, Satan went around doing whatever he wanted to. And he's been getting everybody on the planet to do exactly that. It's time for us to stop doing just whatever we want to do, whatever we think is right. We need to remove sin from our lives Christ came to remove it at the cross, and he came to remove it in our lives. It's inconceivable that God's kids would keep doing it, or even that we'd want to cozy up next to it and see how close we can get to it without falling in. It's like this really bizarre and actually tragic phenomenon we have right now with people taking selfies. I heard a story in the last month in the last month of a guy who was on this beautiful cliff in Arizona taking a photo, a perfect photo, and he posted it on Instagram, and then he disappeared. And they found him the next day dead at the bottom of the cliff. It's dangerous. He got up as close as he could to it. 
It's a danger that social media has lured us into. Do you know that more people have died taking selfies than have died from shark attacks in the last seven years? <laughs> Seriously, more people have been fat fatally wounded by selfies. I counted them up. In the last seven years, 47 fatalities from sharks worldwide in seven years. Huh. 259 people have died of taking selfies in the last seven years. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot when you think worldwide, 259 people, sorry, I don't know if I said that right, 259 people, it doesn't sound like very much, but in 2011, only three people died of what now are being called selficides. Three people died in 2011. In 2017, you know how many? 93 people died from taking selfies because they have that one moment, they want to look so perfect and amazing and wonderful and have that one moment of pleasure of sharing that and they put themselves at risk. In fact, more than half of us say we're willing to stand on the edge of a cliff just to get the right shot, according to the New York Post. I can't believe how much we put ourselves at risk for that, for fleeting pleasure. And it's the same with sin, ladies. We get as close as we possibly can for that one instant a fleeting pleasure, and we put ourselves at risk because of it. Sin killed our Lord and Savior. Let's not put ourselves up that close to it. So what can we do to hate sin and avoid it like Christ did? He came to destroy it. He hated it. It killed him. What can we do to avoid it? Well, the first thing, I've already said it metaphorically, and that is you need to step back from the cliff, okay? Um, that might be the people you hang with. It might be the programs you watch. It might be the things you allow in your home. It might be the pursuits that you're going after in this world, the things you just have to have, the accomplishments. We're gonna need to do some house cleaning in our spiritual lives and start doing like that get organized show that's now on. You know, they start with edit. They say edit. That means get rid of things you don't use or need, okay? We need to start getting rid of things we don't need. And I should say things that don't fit us anymore. And I don't mean our clothes. I mean, you're a Christian. There are some things you're doing in your life that don't fit with who you are anymore. Edit them. Get rid of them. Okay, organize what you've got there. Maybe you get a little baskets, make you organize, you get a team, you put things in different places. But we need to deal with the clutter in our lives that puts us at risk of sin. We won't be sinless until he comes back, but we can sin less. We can sin less by remembering that he loved us, by remembering he's coming back, and by realizing how much he hates sin, okay? There's more. Let's move on to what I think is probably the most important reason we should live right. It's in verse six to eight. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This clearly teaches that if someone is saved, they're going to act like they're saved, right? So you live right, because it proves you're saved. That's number four. You live right because it proves you are saved. John is saying that real Christians 
They don't need to repeat words. They don't need to raise their hand. They don't need to fill out a survey card because their life shows proof, shows evidence of their salvation. When God moves someone from darkness to light, their account says paid in full, right? Their account of sin. But from that point on, they live different and they look different. Even the thief on the cross had this experience. Think about it. He couldn't even jump down for even one more day and do something. But in the only event, the only event we have of his life recorded in our Bibles is him defending Christ to the criminal on the other side of him who was mocking and belittling Christ. And he stands up for him. And with that one righteous deed, that man proved his salvation. And I'm sure that if he was to jump down, there would have been many more, but it proved he was a Christian by what he did in that moment. Well, the end of verse six says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, which means people who say they're saved and don't live like it, they're proving that they aren't, right? I mean, and it's, it's telling us here that They've neither seen him or known him. Well, the seen has to do with understanding, okay? And that understanding, they, they've not understand who Christ is, understood who Christ is. They've not understood that he's the God-man. They've not understood that he's the perfect sacrifice. But they've also not understood things about themselves, like they need that perfect sacrifice. So they haven't seen him. They haven't had understanding. But they also haven't known him. And that knowing isn't head knowledge. That word for knowing here is intimacy, closeness, relationship. They haven't understood these things and they haven't experienced this kind of closeness with Christ. Now, as we just said, Christ's purpose was to take away sin. Obviously, those who are closest to him are not going to be practicing habitual sin. We've already said it. And here, verse six is gonna say it again. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. We know that doesn't mean you never sin. Even the heroes of the faith, people like Moses, David, Peter, they all sinned. We have their sins recorded in our book that we walk around with. But you stay up close to Christ, you will not be habitually sinning. Because when we live up in close proximity to Christ, we're going to be more apt to live right. This came to fruition and living color in front of me when I was helping my mom get a shed this week. Uh, she was cleaning up her backyard and she had to um, rip out some bushes like a week ago. And uh, this, these bushes that she had had like um, vines, those climbing vines that go all over the cinder block wall. And she ripped them out and she left all the vines there. She said, I left them there so they could get, you know, all withered and brown because then I could tell the difference between them. You see, all the good vines were all mixed up with the other vines, but when they became dead and brown and withered, which they did by the time I got there, they were obvious. You could tell which vines were connected to the bushes, which ones were alive. They were green, they had flowers on them, they had buds on them, and it was obvious in even a passing glance which vines were alive, but you could also tell which vines weren't. See, and ladies, our fruit is supposed to show for everyone to see who glances at your life, they should see your connection to the bush. They should see your connection to Jesus Christ. Verse seven and eight says, 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever is alive in Christ is easy to see. And don't forget, these people have just experienced something horrific. We learned about it last week. They had a whole bunch of people in their church that left. Why did they leave? They said they weren't really of us or they would have remained here. They weren't really of them because they didn't believe the right stuff. They didn't live their salvation. They were in pain. These people were in pain. These were people they loved that had walked out. But they walked out because they weren't really saved. And what a paternity test this is. It's really amazing when you think about it. Your righteousness or lack thereof shows who your dad is. Whether your dad is Satan or whether your dad is God. John's concern is for these, especially those that are immature. That's why he says, little children in verse seven, let no one deceive you. He's thinking about those who will be the easiest to be lured away into thinking that it's no big deal to live right. Satan wants us to think that living righteous just ain't that big a deal. And there's a lot of churches that think that. The apostle John does not want us to think that way. He's trying to scream it at us in a bunch of different ways. This is important, we have to live right. While living right doesn't make you a Christian, it certainly proves you are one. And no matter what a person says, the proof is always in the pudding. A person can say they're saved all they want, but there has to be a trail of evidence coming behind them. Now, I, it's, it's scary, honestly, to <sighs> preach a message like this because some people will rush out of here telling everyone you're not a Christian. <laughs> Just you, 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 right? That's, that's what we're tempted to do. And I, and I will say, this is obviously the most important critical decision there is on the planet. So I totally get that desire. But I have to tell you, this has to start with you. This can't start with somebody else. This has to start with you. You have to look behind you and see if you're living right. Are you practicing righteousness as he is righteous? And I don't mean you're doing it because you wanna look good for your small group. Or you don't wanna be embarrassed when your husband catches you doing something. But I, I mean you're practicing righteousness because it's who you are, okay? If you look behind you and you realize that that's not really you, that you're not really saved, just come clean, stop pretending. I can tell you right now, we don't care when you became a Christian. All we care about is that you are one. We don't care if you have to change your testimony. It doesn't matter to us. We just want you to get this right. And if you see a problem in the evidence, in the Cheeto trail that you're leaving behind or lack thereof, you need to ask for God's forgiveness. I need to follow him from now on. Okay, then you can go out and talk to your loved ones. But I'm gonna tell you that you need to carefully, prayerfully, thoughtfully talk to your loved ones about the fact that Christians have to live right. They have to practice righteousness as he is righteous. And I will caution you to pray, pray, and pray some more. 
because this isn't up to you having the perfect argument or saying the exact sentence that you think is going to break through the clouds in their brain and help them see it, whether it's someone in your small group or your sister or if it's your mom or whoever this is. God has to do the work. He did it in you. He has to do it in them. It's a God thing. Share with them, yes, but trust God for it and pray for them to have the clouds cleared in their head. Becoming a Christian makes us unable to continue in a pattern of sin. That's what 1 John 3 teaches. So we live right because he loves us, because he's coming back, because it is something God hates and because it proves we're a Christian. We live right because we are right. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And here we see the very last directive. We live right because God is behind us and because God is working in us. And that's number five. Live right because God is working in you. Live right because God is working in you. Of course, we get this idea of him working in us from the seed image. You see it in verse nine, the seed image. As a seed brings life to a garden, so does divine seed bring divine life in God's kids. Now, commentators, they talk a lot about what is the seed? Well, there's three different options. I'm gonna give you all three, okay? One option is found in Ezekiel 36. It's the only passage I'm asking you to turn to tonight, so I'd ask you to go there. Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a prophet of God, and he was a prophet of God in a time when Israel was in big trouble. They were being disciplined. It was during the exile. They're in Babylon, and Ezekiel is there, and he, we're studying it right now, right? We're reading it in the DBR. What a freaky life. Have you thought about what it's like to be Ezekiel? You know, he's making models, He's laying on his side for over a year, then he's laying on his other side. I mean, this was hard. He was living in a hard time. But in Ezekiel 36, God promises it's not always gonna be this way, okay? 36, verse 25 and 26. God says, basically, he's gonna make a new agreement with them. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit with a small s. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. When God converts someone, we get washed clean and we get made new and we get a new heart. Mike likes to say that we have new software. And in Ezekiel eleven twenty, I won't make you turn there, but he says that that heart that he gives us is going to help you walk in his statues and keep his rules and obey him. And then we shall be his people and he will be our God. When we're remade, we wanna do God's stuff from the inside. The core of who we are wants to please the Lord. The real us wants to do the things that God would want us to do. That's one option for the seed, the remaking of you, right? And the new software we have. Then Ezekiel 36, you're still there, and verse 27 brings up another possibility. Verse 27, God says, I will put my spirit with a capital S 
in you. That means the Holy Spirit. I will put the Holy Spirit of God within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We got new software, now we got a new roommate. It's the best roommate we could have. I mean, he's like the greatest problem solver and superhero all in one. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is our helper, our teacher, our convictor, our comforter. It says that he empowers us, he makes us safe, and he prays for us. But you know the most important thing the Holy Spirit does for us? He saves us. And God the Father and God the Son, they're in heaven right now. But God the Holy Spirit is the one who lives here on the planet with us. In fact, the Bible says he lives so close to us, it's like he lives inside of us. That's the potential seed number two, okay? Then there's number three. It's found in 1 Peter 1.23, which says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That's our Bible. Our Bible that sits there to lead and guide and direct and comfort you so that you can live right. Now, I don't know which one of these three seeds it is, and I'm not sure that I totally care because I'm, I'm not too ashamed to say I need all three. In my fight with sin and my fight to have good patterns in my life, I need the new software God gave me and I need the Holy Spirit living inside me and I need my Bible. I need all three to empower me to do this right. And this whole I work and God works thing, this whole dichotomy of who's doing the work, is it God, is it you? It's in the Bible quite a few times, including probably one of the most famous verses in the gospel, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you add 10, you've got the God works, we work. Here's another one, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, Paul says. You do some work with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, it says, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's an element where God is working in us and actually empowering and motivating us to do some work and live right. So it's both and. And this seed thought also reminds us that we're, if we're God's kids, there should be some kind of family resemblance, right? I mean, our kids look and act like us. I had someone tell me that this morning, Pastor John talks exactly and prays exactly like his dad. Okay, well, I had this experience, whoa, totally. Can't even tell you how amazing it was because I was speaking for Bethany Kelly's mom's church in Central California last week. I cannot even put into words how those two women sound alike. As I'm driving through the middle of nowhere in California and Bethany Kelly's mom's talking to me on my phone, I kept having to think, this is not Bethany. This is not Bethany, this is not Bethany. Don't act like this is Bethany, don't talk like this is Bethany, this is Bethany's mom. She sounds so much like her, it is shocking actually. I wish I could have her here, the two of them. You closed your eyes, you'd never know the difference. There's such a strong family resemblance. Our genetics and our biology is on display for all to see, right? We want our spiritual DNA to be that evident. We want to sound so much like God that people can't tell the difference between us. There is no more important reason to be a chip off the old block than the reason that our likeness to God is proof that we're Christians. Jesus said it himself, you're gonna recognize them by their fruits, right? 
And then we studied all summer, Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit, we call it. It's the evidence that God is working in you. And he works things like love, joy, and peace. And by the way, verse 10 is gonna say, practicing righteousness means you have to love your brother. And that's a segue to next time, because that's where we're going. With God's help and our effort, sin is gonna happen less and less in our lives. Because sin just doesn't fit anymore doesn't fit in who we are. It's incompatible. Now, a non-Christian, they can sin and feel just fine and live their lives happily, but not Christians. Our hearts grieve. We feel sick to our stomach. We cry. We're overwhelmed. We're frustrated when we fall to sin. That's another assurance that God is working in you. And it means that fighting sin should be the reality and the default mode for every Christian. We should be fighting not to sin. And one writer said that the Christian life is like having access to an entire power grid. All we have to do is plug in. We need to plug in every single day, ladies. Plug in with your new heart. Seek him and prepare for the battle, okay? Plug in with the Holy Spirit. Talk to God. Be connected with him. Plug in with your Bible, right? You're gonna need all three, So plug into the power grid every day and prepare for the fight. I have a verse for you to memorize, which totally is such a great one for you to do the heart, the spirit, and the word all together. Here's the verse, Titus 2, 11 to 14. Great verse to memorize. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Amen, praise the Lord. Verse 12 says, this gospel comes to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Wow, we need to live right because God is working in us. So if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? I hope so. But if you walked in and you're a little light on evidence, which I'm sure all of us can see some area that we need to um, work on, we need to remember we need to live right because God loves us, because he's coming back, because he hates sin, because we're really his kid, and because he's working inside of us. But I want to leave you with a song, which I am thankfully not going to sing to you. (laughs) But it was a song written, um, it was a song written actually during the time when William and Catherine Booth were founding the Salvation Army, if you were (laughs) experiencing the tea with us this year. Um, It was made popular by D.L. Moody during his evangelistic crusades, but it's an urging on for us to live right. And here's what it's called, Take Time to Be Holy. I hope that it spurs you on too. This is what it says. Take time to be holy, speak often with the Lord, abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's children and seek those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like him, you will be. Your friends in your conduct, his likeness will see. Take time to be holy. Let him be your guide and run not before him, whatever betide. 
in joy or in sorrow, still follow the Lord, and looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to be holy. Be calm in your soul, every thought and every motive beneath his control. Thus, led by his spirit to fountains of love, you soon will be fitted for service above. Take time to be holy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I do pray for my sisters here. It's hard to live right in this culture. It's hard to live right because we still live in bodies, in fleshy bodies that really want our pleasures fulfilled. It's hard to live right because we are surrounded by people who don't live right, quite frankly. So I pray for my sisters. I pray that they would use these resources they have you, your Holy Spirit, your word, but another resource that didn't even come up in our passage, and that is each other. I thank you, God, that we're going to get to go to small groups right now and that these ladies are going to be able to flesh all this out in real life with those groups. And I want to pray for those here or that will hear this online or maybe tomorrow that really and truly, if they look at their lives, they know there is no evidence following after them that they are truly saved. Their mouth is saying it, but their life isn't. God, help them to be honest. Help their sisters to embrace them and not be shocked or judgmental, but just to be kind and say, oh, I'm so glad that you finally saw this. Let's pray together. I'll be with you. And God, I pray for those that we will go out and we, whether they're in our small group or they're somebody else in the church or they're someone in our family, those that we go out that we love so much that we do not see that conviction of sin in their life. We do not see them trying to fight it. We do not see evidence of their salvation. Help us to go to them kindly, prayerfully, but help us to go because we need to. Those who practice righteousness are righteous. We need to get that truth out to them. And God, I pray for the rest of us that we would just fight, fight the temptations, fight the things that want to suck us in and be continual patterns of sin in our lives. Help us to be honest in our groups and really talk these things through and what will we do this week to live right. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.